thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. The notion of sanctuary, sanctuary for the oppressed individual or for groups of people fleeing persecution or war, is an ancient and noble one. In biblical times, there were even designated sanctuary cities for those who'd been accused of something and were under threat of retaliation. In these days, unfortunately, the women's refuge provides another, all-too-common sort of sanctuary. In the natural world, the idea of sanctuaries is associated with the environment and the wildlife. Here's Jan van Bookover speaking about fish sanctuaries on the Naked Scientist show, Alternatives to overfishing. One of those means is to set up what we call community-based marine protected area. In the Philippines, they're often called fish sanctuaries. And what they are is they're basically a small area of the reef that is set apart. And within that area, no fishing whatsoever is allowed. There's some limited diving allowed inside for tourists. But other than that, the area is fully protected. What we're trying to establish is a situation where Fish within the sanctuary are allowed to grow and actually reproduce. And after several years, fish start to leave the sanctuary, and that's where they can get caught by the fishermen. So it protects the fish within the sanctuary, but in addition to that, it also creates what's known as a spillover effect. So fish actually leave the sanctuary when they're at a size and an age where it's more productive for fishermen to catch them. Sanctuary is the topic on this week's Naked Reflections, and we're focusing on sanctuary in the human realm. What exactly is it and who can deliver it? With me to discuss Sanctuary is Dr. Beth Phillips, Public Engagement Fellow here at the Wolf Institute, and amongst other things, Beth has worked with prisoners in high-security installations, 
and is the author of the intriguingly entitled Political Theology, A Guide for the Perplexed. Joining Beth is Sarah Truitt, Chief Operating Officer of the charity City of Sanctuary. City of Sanctuary works towards building a culture of welcome and hospitality towards refugees and asylum seekers across the country. Sarah focuses on the Northeast, Yorkshire and Humberside. Well, welcome both. The fish sanctuary may seem an odd metaphor, but I wonder whether the threefold approach of protection, flourishing and moving on is actually helpful. Sarah? It does provide an interesting sort of metaphor for what we like to see in the space where we're offering welcome. I mean, certainly the first and most important step is to bring people into a place of safety and sanctuary. So yes, that initial idea of offering protection is crucial. I think an important element of the work that we try and do with our communities and partner organizations is about offering opportunities for people who have come seeking sanctuary to be able to find their footing, start to feel part of their new community, and rebuild their lives in a new way so that they can make sense of what they've experienced in being forcibly displaced but also make plans going forward. It's a lovely little metaphor. When one meets refugees, you do it locally, don't you? In the school playground and in the local doctor's surgery and things like that. And of course, it's helping the local communities manage it as much as it is for those asylum seekers and refugees who have arrived. I mean, the reason why City of Sanctuaries has developed over time is that the emphasis is, well, of course, we want to create communities of welcome for the new arrivals but it's also about the wider community more generally. It's not just about making sure that the services are being provided that refugees may need, but it's about also engaging all of the institutions that form our communities to kind of think through how can we be more inclusive? How can we be more supportive of people who may have experienced trauma in in the transition here? Well, let's go back in time a bit, Beth. Tell us a little bit about the idea of sanctuary cities in the Bible and whether you think it has any contemporary relevance. Well, there are several passages in the Hebrew Bible that talk about places of sanctuary where both aliens and resident aliens could come and be protected if they had committed what we would call manslaughter, unintentional killing. And in some of these passages, it seems to be talking about literal sanctuary, that it is going into the place of worship and standing at the altar, which is what gives someone sanctuary. In other places, there's talk of setting up specific regional locations where people could go to find this sanctuary. And some scholars think that's a development through time, whether that's a literary development or historical development isn't clear. Now, whether or not that's relevant today, obviously this was about the very specific case of manslaughter and people not being sought out by the Ken's people of those who had died for blood revenge. And so I've seen some especially anti-immigration perspectives from which people say this idea of sanctuary should not be used with reference to immigration because it has nothing to do with immigration. Now, of course, because this included aliens and resident aliens, you could question that claim in and of itself. But also, it's clear that, especially in the faith traditions that use the idea of sanctuary, there's a lot of other things in those faith traditions that people are drawing on. And in fact, there's a refugee story at the beginning of all three of the Abrahamic faiths. And the really clear duties in each of those three faiths to hospitality, to welcoming strangers, and to the dignity of each individual. So there's a lot that these faith traditions are drawing on when they're using the idea of sanctuary that's not just about these passages about these specific locations of sanctuary. 
fascinating to hear that kind of historical corollary. And I happen to live in a city that is known as a sanctuary city in North Yorkshire. But just to say, the City of Sanctuary movement was founded back in 2005 in Sheffield with the Methodist leader Indirajit Bogle. And he and Craig Barnett came together and they wanted to encompass this idea of offering sanctuary for people who were fleeing war and persecution. But over time, organizationally, we've obviously expanded, moved on. And what I would say is what's important about the work that we do now is, is while we have lots of faith institutions that we interact with and engage with, we see ourselves as an organization that's sort of for all faiths and for none. And while we can draw, you know, a lot of inspiration from some of the examples that the different faiths lay out around welcoming the stranger, and we share that with our churches and synagogues and mosques, that we work with. We also think it's really important to emphasize that for us, the notion of sanctuary extends beyond faith circles and that we sort of see it as a way for all communities to think about how we treat each other and particularly the stranger who may have experienced flight or persecution. You touched on earlier, Sarah, and I want to sort of drill down a bit here, the public perception or some of the public's perception, because frankly, there is a difference, isn't there, between immigration and people who are coming for reasons of economic improvement And if you like, those who are seeking asylum, who are fleeing some kind of oppression back home. And I wonder if you could just tease that out, because surely there's got to be a difference there. And we've got to separate it in the debate. Otherwise, it all becomes very vacuous. I think, you know, to sort of separate individuals into these different classifications is a really divisive mechanism in some ways, because it allows people to sort of suggest that there's good migrants, bad migrants, and those who are worthy of being here and who aren't. And what I would say to that is certainly there are ways in which we can think through immigration that are a little bit more nuanced and a little more sophisticated and recognize that there are often a range of issues that push people to move abroad and that there are certain types of economic realities at the moment. I mean, for example, we are experiencing a labor shortage in many sectors of our economy. And the fact is we have need of labor, which we can't find internally. So, you know, some of the suggestions that economic migration is not as important or valid, I would suggest, you know, we all benefit from the fact that we have fuller employment in places like hospitality or the medical field. And I think what's really unfortunate is that some people who have experienced war and persecution, who develop resilience and talent and come to our country simply trying to find a little bit of sanctuary and peace, we don't let them bring their talents to us and to the wider community. And unfortunately, because so often people wind up being in the asylum process for such a long time, they're not able to become economically active for a while. And again, that sort of feeds this perception on simultaneously asylum seekers are stealing benefits while they're not being allowed to actually work and offer their talents and be paid. So it's sort of this double bind that a lot of these asylum seekers find themselves in. Beth, I wonder whether some of the um, different language used about the stranger, the resident alien, there's the foreign, all these different terms that the Bible uses, but they do differentiate between them, don't they? Is there something there? Because I'll be honest, it's sometimes a bit easy to simply say that all refugees, and I speak as a child of two refugees, are saints, and all people who come here have the right to come here. We have borders, we have to have borders, I think. But how do we manage that process? And do the biblical texts, whether it's Hebrew Bible, New Testament, or frankly, Quranic and other texts, help us here in terms of differentiation? It is clear in the legal and political traditions of these three faiths that there are distinctions made between citizens or insiders to the community and those who are resident but not originally from that nation or community and those who are refugees or asylum seekers. 
And interestingly, it's Islamic law that has the strongest provisions for the absolute duty to provide care to refugees and asylum seekers, whereas they are more prescribed in the other traditions. And I think maybe going back to the analogy of the fish sanctuary is is interesting here because one of the purposes, it sounds like, of that project was to try to hold in balance what's needed in the natural world in terms of safety and flourishing for that fish population and what are the legitimate needs of self-interest of the local population who need to go fishing and be able to sell fish and that this project tried to attend to both of those. I think that, of course, we have to recognize the legitimate self-interest of nations, but also balancing that on either side with the attention to the needs and dignity of every human being, no matter their origin and their circumstance, and the role of each nation in the global community. So there's the national question, if you like, Sarah, but there's also the local question. How much power do local governments and local councils have? I think, in short, in the context of the UK, probably very little. I mean, our immigration policies are set by Westminster. And so local authorities are very much constrained by what they can and can't do. They can't sort of override those elements and they can't prevent those authorities from, for example, seizing people and putting them in detention when those situations arise. However, that's not to say that local communities and local authorities can't creatively engage with how to sort of best offer and support sanctuary, particularly the initiatives that exist within their communities. Over the last year and a half, we've been developing something we call the Local Authorities of Sanctuary Network, which is effectively just that we bring together different local authorities from across the UK. Right now, we've had about 22 places like Birmingham, Bradford, Newcastle that regularly meet and discuss and share ideas about what's happening. So in the last year, we've had meetings where they got together and they talked about how they're supporting the Ukrainian scheme, how they're facilitating support with local actors. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, with the war in Ukraine and the public reaction to it, which has been quite remarkable. Has it privatized this area? Because so many tens of thousands of people offered their homes. And I know there's been a sort of a real backlog and problems getting visas and the home office and so on. But is there a danger when you privatize the sanctuary? I think I would say two things to that. And Sarah can speak better, I'm sure, to the present situation. But just sort of conceptually, I would say, on the one hand, there's lots of precedents for sanctuary movements being private. And so, for example, most recently in the States, the sanctuary movement was about the Trump era, really hostile immigration policies and the huge drives to detain and deport people. And so places of worship and schools and universities declared themselves sanctuaries where people could come and be protected so that they would not be detained or deported. And so that's, you know, a grassroots private kind of movement. And I think that helps sort of tease out the fact that when private sanctuary movements arise from the grassroots, that can be a really positive thing that may show a really healthy civil society, or it may show um, important resistance to bad government policies. On the other hand, if the drive for privatization comes from above, if it's government policy pushing provision downward to private sectors, then we have to ask some really serious questions about what the motivation and the payoff is of that kind of movement. You've hit some really crucial points there. I mean, I think what we're seeing with the Ukraine response, while it is incredibly heartening and incredibly moving to see so many people opening their homes simultaneously, 
it's effectively allowed the government to abdicate responsibility. The government is really trying to put the onus on integration and community welcome entirely on local and voluntary groups. And now, of course, some of it is quite fitting that, you know, at that local level is where you see appropriate activity. And I don't for one moment suggest that all answers to integration should lie in Westminster, certainly not. However, I do think it's concerning because it's that outsourcing. And it's an interesting dynamic. Sorry, I'm going to pull in another bit of my background. My mother's Swedish, so I spend time going between the two countries. What I see here in the UK is we have this really vibrant voluntary sector that's committed and doing a lot of work, but is completely overstretched lack capacity, lack funding, which means that we're sort of susceptible to breaking at any moment. And I would say the refugee sector has felt this way under stress for the past year following the Afghanistan crisis, Ukraine, as well as the recent passage of the Nationality and Borders Act. But then you have a different contrast in the case of Sweden, where there's huge state provision for new arrivals, and it almost abdicates responsibility at the community level and at the voluntary sector level. So communities don't feel responsible for it because it's what the government doing. I think in an ideal world, we'd find a space where both the local sector and the national government were working a little bit more in sync to offer that welcome. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Beth Phillips and Sarah Tewitt, and our subject, Sanctuary. Our association with The Naked Scientist Show often provides some unexpected insights into the subjects we discuss. For example, my ears pricked up when I heard Sabine Clark talking to Chris Smith about what happened in the city of York in the 17th century. It was a time where some very draconian measures were introduced to control the plague. And what the city council, the aldermen, did at this period was institute a policy of boarding up the sick and affected in their own homes. So, crikey, what would have happened to those people then? Well, in fact, guards would stand outside their houses and place boards across their doors and their windows. And while they would pass the inhabitants of the house some food, they basically waited really until everyone was dead. Sabine Clark speaking on the show The Best of the BA Festival and spilling the beans on what sounds like some rather hair-raising public health policies. Beth, are plague lockdowns a kind of negative version of sanctuary? Well, I think one of the interesting things to tease out here in relating this conversation about plague lockdowns, or maybe we should say lock-ins, these aren't lockdowns as we experienced it two years ago, um, is thinking about the relationship between individual good and common good. Because in the case of these people being locked in during the plague, the only concern there is public health. It's not for the well-being or safety or health of the person being locked in. And of course, that's sort of reasonable in the historical setting and what was possible at that time. We can't really second guess that from our own perspective. But I think that thinking about that in relation to cities of sanctuary, it's interesting to me that the ancient provisions for sanctuary explicitly had in mind both the individual good and the common good, that there was the desire to provide a safe space in a moment of acute need for individuals, not based on any merit, but just individuals have dignity in and of themselves and deserve safety and protection. 
but also that this was seen as part of the common good, understood as, you know, limiting vigilante justice in particular, because it was absolutely legal in these contexts for Ken's people to seek the death of someone who had murdered one of their own. So that wasn't an illegal thing. But the sanctuary provided a moment of safety or a very long period of safety until that case could actually be judged. And there was an understanding there that this is the kind of society we want to be. We don't want to be a society where vigilante justice goes unchecked. And I think that many, many people suggest, especially coming from faith perspectives, that this attention to individual dignity and to the common good and always holding those in conversation with one another is what's so badly needed in policies around immigration and asylum and refugees. And that very often the problem is that one or both of those is not being attended to as well as it should be, or they're not seen as interdependent on one another, that the good of individuals in need is necessary for the common good. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's a very important thing for us to keep in mind, because so often the focus right now around the asylum seeker debate in the UK is around whether or not these particular individuals are worthy of asylum or sanctuary. Whereas I think, particularly in the work that we're seeing, there's so much benefit to a wider community to thinking about how do we take care of those who might be most vulnerable and most in need of support and aid? And what does that do for all of us collectively? You know, it's an interesting dynamic because in light of COVID, I think we were all very congratulatory in 2020, 21, when we sort of were going through this period of having our lockdowns and celebrating the NHS and talking about our shared common responsibility. For some of us, we hoped that that would kind of extend into a wider discussion about what that means for those who may be undergoing crisis or destitution even before or post COVID. And I think unfortunately now we've lost a little bit of that dialogue and debate around What is it we all owe each other to keep each other safe and healthy? And not just in the context of physical public health, but I think now that sort of wider debate is sadly not happening to the degree I would have hoped to see coming out of COVID. It's part of the flawed human condition, I think, Sarah, our kind of loss of memory and putting things behind us. And it does strike me that one of the areas to help people and our listeners to understand the issues that we're facing is the personal encounter i mean it's one thing to read about it in the newspapers or online or and see it on on our laptops but unless we actually meet people face to face we don't really appreciate the challenges that they have and, and actually on the whole in my experience they're not as bad as i thought they were Yes, I mean, that was definitely my experience in working with people who are in prisons and also just in ethnographic research that I've done, that actually going to be with a group of people and trying in whatever very limited way to get inside their reality is the only way to fully understand and appreciate human experience. And as much as you can read about it or think about it, encounter is where that actually becomes real in a way that sticks. It's fascinating that you brought this up, actually, because, I mean, if you look at sort of our documentation, what our theory of change is predicated on that social contact theory. And it's really about changing hearts and minds. And what's an interesting thing for us in the movement is just that over the last five or six years, as we've seen, for example, resettlement of refugees expand over the country, moving beyond sort of traditional urban conurbations and coming into areas like North Yorkshire, where I am, you're seeing more and more groups develop because, quite frankly, suddenly they're encountering people who have sought sanctuary and understand them for what they are, which are humans who've gone through 
a really difficult experience, just a reflection of something that's happened to them as opposed to some sort of innate characteristic. And so I think absolutely it's about trying to kind of reconnect individuals. And I think what's powerful about the work that a lot of our groups do is because they're just able to help facilitate those moments and spaces, whether they're in a drop-in center or a food bank or whether they're in a classroom or at a university setting. And it's a real strong element of the work that we're doing is trying to bring those with lived experience, we call them experts by experience, into the discussion around how we frame the narrative around asylum, and which hopefully over time will change some of the policy implications, because clearly, as you probably understood from this conversation, you know, we have significant concerns about some of the approaches that our government is taking around seeking sanctuary. I think there's a recognition, even in the Home Office, that the system is broken, and certainly that's my understanding of it, across political and ideological boundaries and so on. So how do we move it forward? I know from personal experience that hosting Syrian refugees was an enormous privilege to my wife and I, and you learn so much, and your friends do as well. I wonder if you could give us an example, Sarah, of, in your experience, how a life has been changed I mean, a friend of mine here in Riffin who hosted a Syrian young man a few years ago, his story is an incredible story because he was sort of in limbo waiting for a status. And while he was waiting, he signed up for some coursework to continue. He was interested in linguistics. Finally, he got his permission to stay. He got accepted into a Leeds University, did his MA. He was so successful at that. Then he was invited to continue on and do research into his PhD. You know, when he describes his period of being hosted in a family, he had no idea that he would gain the stability and peace of mind to be able to think about those next steps. So it can be really transformative for that new arrival. In terms of that family, well, that person has gone on to be incredibly active within the City of Sanctuary movement here in North Yorkshire and has helped spearhead community sponsorship and helping to bring further refugee families to our community, which not only benefits those individual families, but then again expands this community's conception of its role in offering hospitality and welcome. Beth, it's easy enough or maybe not too difficult, if you like, to welcome refugees, but we can't remove our borders, can we? Well, as you say, there's a range of opinions on that. And there was a time when borders, as we know them now, did not exist. There was a time when the modern nation state, as we know it now, did not exist. So, of course, it's possible for these things not to exist. Whether or not that's something we should seek is a matter of huge debate. It's sort of unrealistic to talk about that in this kind of conversation as if that's the reality that we can change while there are so many people waiting to cross borders. But I think it's an important question to keep on the table, to keep ourselves aware of the fact that the way we think of borders now is not how it has always been and is not the only possibility. I think that's a really interesting point. Borders have been ever shifting. And one would say that legacies from the colonial era when lines were drawn on maps sort of suggest how transitory some of these notions are. Now, I would say most of us who are sort of in the pro-sanctuary side of things, who offer a sort of more expansive immigration approach, none of us are sort of suggesting the idea that borders are going to be erased tomorrow. I would sort of counter the idea that if there were no borders tomorrow, everyone would pick up sticks and start moving and particularly flocking en masse to the UK. I think that's very much a myth, frankly, that's being peddled by a lot of people in the popular press and for whom it serves to kind of create this narrative that there are hordes of people who are seeking to come here to the UK. The reality is very different. I mean, in truth, most people do not want to leave their homes. 
if you look in terms of the numbers, yes, we're at a historic high post-World War II in terms of the number of people who have crossed international borders. UNHCR estimates there's roughly about 100 million now in the wake of the Ukraine crisis. But in the context of a planet of 9 billion, that's actually not huge numbers. And I would also just suggest that these ideas that somehow the UK is full or we've taken our fair share or relatives, the numbers just don't bear out when you compare the number of people arriving here into the UK versus other parts of the European continent. I think the other thing also that's important thinking about borders between modern nation states is that the whole idea of the modern nation state is that this is a nation, a group of people usually with the same ethnic heritage and the idea that each of these peoples should have their own sovereign state. That, of course, is no longer the condition in which most nation states exist in terms of, you know, now being multicultural or pluralist or multi-ethnic. And part of the conversation now is not only about borders in terms of migration and immigration, but the identity of the state. And when we see reassertions of the idea of the nation state in terms of ethnicity, that's, of course, one of the the really troubling things that is in the ascendance now in many places, this reassertion that our state should be of this specific ethnicity and therefore we have to keep out asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants. I think you've both suggested a new topic for a future Naked Reflections podcast, Borders and Boundaries. Well, that's all for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Beth Phillips and Sarah Truitt, for their time and their insights, and many thanks to you for listening. If this show provided you with some sanctuary from the vicissitudes of daily life, you might want to browse our archive of podcasts, which include subjects like the movement of peoples and diasporas. There are plenty of insights there. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.